Hi, hi. You're listening to the Corporate Cleanse podcast, where we talk about the pros and cons of corporate life and how I, a former fancy executive, hit full burnout and am now on a journey to explore how we all can maintain our sanity and sense of self, all while climbing the corporate ladder. I hope you enjoy listening along with me and know that everyone needs, occasionally, a corporate cleanse. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Corporate Cleanse podcast. And whether you're new to the podcast or if you've been following along for the whole journey, I'm sure you've noticed that I'm not a chill gal. Like I Google Maps everywhere I go to figure out where to park and like which direction to approach the parking lot so I don't have to make a left turn. I hate left turns, the anxiety that that causes me. If you Google chill girl in like thesaurus.com, my picture would show up under antonym, antonyms for chill. I'm that trope. I'm that trope now of the girl who needs to know like where we're going, how we're getting there, if there will be snacks, when there will be snacks, what I should wear, how long we're going to be there, who's going to be there. Like that's the type of anxiety I'm, I'm playing with. Full itineraries are my love language. My friends know this. Like if you send me a spreadsheet for a trip, I will love you forever. I'll be like, yep, wherever we're going, I don't care. There's a spreadsheet and I feel safe. And I really want to be a chill girl. I really do. There's so many times in my life where I've just like pretended to be chill, but like really my eyes are wide and I am panicked. But I really love Ali Wong's Netflix special (laughs) where she kind of says, I have never wanted wanted to date a chill guy because chill don't pay the bills, which I get. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not chill. I pay the bills, but I'm also super neurotic and and really, really high strung. So that's kind of my state constantly. And anxiety is such a sweeping statement. It's such a sweeping category. But I have definitely struggled with different flavors of anxiety my whole life sometimes like a whole Neapolitan cake of flavors of anxiety at any given time. And it's been interesting working through some of those. And it's been interesting also like not working through some of those and, and seeing how they've played out and evaluating how they started early in my life and how they ended up playing out in my life and in my career. And this has really crystallized for me with me taking this corporate cleanse, with me taking some time off of work. Part of this is, am I the happiest I've ever been right now? Is this what happiness feels like? Is this, was, is this what having a, ner- a regulated nervous system feels like? Like probably, probably, Jen. Right now I am crocheting a lot, not just a lot, like a production level of crocheting. And I'm getting really into this podcast called Tooth and Claw. It's about animal attacks. It's about wild animal attacks. And my daughter and I were just crocheting and we're listening to this podcast and we're just like, I'm the happiest we've ever been. I'm the happiest I've ever been. And I wake up in the morning with this mentality of like, the world is my oyster. And I listen to my Tooth and Claw podcast, which I highly recommend. I I, I really do. It's kind of a weird, like, funny thing. But it's like a wildlife biologist, and they talk through, like, grizzly bear attacks, and then they talk about, like, safety. And then at the end, they they rate their ouchies. They rate ouchies for these animal attacks. Anyway, give it a listen. This isn't sponsored. I just love Tooth and Claw podcast. And it's powered me creating, like, I don't know, 100 crocheted bags at this point. 
But I wake up right now with this sort of the world is my oyster. The day is full of possibilities energy, which I've never had in my entire life. And definitely money anxiety starts to slip in for me, like creep in and it makes me panic. But all my other types of anxiety have kind of taken a break, have kind of taken a sabbatical from plaguing my daily thoughts. And kind of seeing that juxtaposition of the amount of anxiety I was playing with when I was working versus now is extreme. Another part of this is in my relationship last year, I was the corporate girly and my husband was an aerospace engineer. Now our roles are reversed. He is a corporate girly and I'm crocheting. So this sort of juxtaposition and like role reversal has really helped me crystallize how anxiety plays out in your career and then resulting in how that plays out in your life. And in, and I think it's a really interesting realization for me of how not okay I was, how high functioning my anxiety was. But when I've taken a step back, when I've taken a step out, I'm like, wow, man, that was an unsustainable level of anxiety. I'll give you kind of one last anecdote. So I went to Copenhagen with some really dear girlfriends. Um, I had a friend that just got into her residency program for her, for a surgical program. And so we were kind of trying to like live our lives in those weeks before she starts. And we went to Copenhagen. Long story short, I lost my luggage or KLM lost my luggage. And not because I checked the bag. Okay. I need this to be known. I never check bags because I'm such an anxious person. I brought it on board with me. I put it above in the overhead, like uh, hamburger style, okay? Because that's how it fit. Somebody had come on the plane and like changed it to like hot dog style without me knowing. And then the stewardess came by to like close it and couldn't close it. And she was like, this bag is too big. And I was like, well, it wasn't too big when it was hamburger style, but now that it's hot dog style, it's too big. And she was like, we're gonna have to deplane this and check it. I was like, okay. And this lovely Dutch woman like takes it off the plane and like has this panic look on her face because it's so big and so heavy. And like she threw all this shame on me and I was like, oh my God, this is this is the worst case experience. So I was like, okay, just take it and, and stop looking at me. Anyway, my luggage got left at the airport and I went to Copenhagen without my luggage. Earlier, Jen, like Jen of last year would have just melted down. It completely had a meltdown, wouldn't have enjoyed my time in Copenhagen, would have just, I don't know, maybe just gone home. <laughs> I would have just been like, okay, well, I have to go home now. I, I don't have anything I need. But, you know, I sat there, I took some deep breaths. I had my carry-on, which like, I don't know, had some skincare, an extra pair of underwear, and I was like, okay, fine. I guess I'm going to be fine. And the next day, in Copenhagen, I went out with what I was wearing to the airport, which was like sweats. I went to a yoga class in my sweats. <laughs> I went exploring in the city in my sweats. Like, and I just was, I just made the best of it. I, I didn't want it to ruin my trip. And realizing how much of a different experience I would have had when my anxiety was very, very high while I was embedded in corporate life versus sort of how I handled it now, again, is making me really want to pick apart this anxiety and and how how I think it stemmed from my life how it affected me in my career and what it took from me in my life in my personal life so disclaimer I am not a mental health professional I am not trained nor educated in diagnosing anxiety disorders I'm just talking through my experience with anxiety, the specific and different types of anxiety that I have struggled with, and maybe in present tense, struggle with, and how those have affected me. So today, I want to talk through what I have identified as my four horsemen of the apocalypse, my four anxiety types that just plague my daily, my daily my days. Uh, okay. Number one, we've talked about this before, but number one is money anxiety or the fear of just not making it. 
the fear of just not being okay, not making it in life. Number two, uncertainty, anxiety. The fear of not being prepared. Number three, control anxiety. The fear of not having control, the fear of not being in control. And lastly, number four, status anxiety. The fear of not being liked, fear of not being regarded highly, and the fear of other people's opinions. I first want to talk about why this took me so long to realize or to dissect. Why I am now this 35-year-old woman taking the first break in my career and just now realizing that my crippling anxiety has, has been hugely detrimental to me in my career and my life. So is anxiety, is anxiety a friend or a foe? I read this article from Career Contessa, and this article reads, like so many of the ambitious women that I have worked for, Kate is always the first person at her desk. She's willing to volunteer for any task, and her plate always seems to be full. She's kind, capable, on top of it, successful. At least that's how she appears to the outside world. Internally, from time to time, Kate's feet hit the floor. Her mind is running an, a nonstop list of all the things she needs to do, to do that day. She's always thinking about what comes next and trying to figure out the best way to handle any given situation. Kate appears calm and collected, but behind the scenes... She is in constant fight-or-flight mode, desperately trying to keep her insecurities and doubts at bay. Sound familiar? End quote. Ha. Is uh, Kate me? Is Kate code for Jen? Like, geez, if this isn't me to a T. And at first glance, of course Kate is successful. Of course Kate has achieved certain levels in her career. On the surface, this is the woman that has it all that gets the promotion, that is always prepared, that shows up to every meeting with like nine backup data points for every argument she could encounter. On the surface, this is just a high-achieving, successful woman of sort of like the, how does Kate do it? She's amazing. But under the surface is a woman with a highly dysregulated nervous system that is constantly swinging between fight, flight, or freeze, that isn't moving through the stress cycle and is living in this constant state of, I'm fighting a bear. And my, her body's just kind of pumping cortisol into her body while she's smiling in board meetings, pretending everything is fine. Sound familiar? Again, that's also me. That was also me. Really high-functioning func- high anxiety. So part of why this took me so long to realize, because is because anxiety got me a lot in my career. Anxiety almost became a badge of honor that I wore. I owe a lot of my success to my high-functioning anxiety. So, like, why should I dissect it? Why would I look deeper? It's like someone hands you this, like, golden ticket. And that golden ticket is damn heavy. It's slowly poisoning you with, I don't know, metallic toxins. It's making you run slower. It's making other people hate you, but it's a golden ticket. So you're not going to question it. And that's how I kind of felt about my anxiety. A couple years ago, my husband gifted me this book called Just Enough Anxiety. And this author kind of interviews hundreds of CEOs and talks about sort of this like balance of like, okay, Some anxiety is good and can really help your career, but once it reaches a certain tipping point, it's just awful and crippling and and unsustainable. But when you look at the definition of anxiety, anxiety refers to the anticipation of a future concern and is more associated with muscle tension and avoidance behavior. Fear is an emotional response to an immediate threat and is more associated with a fight or flight reaction, either staying in fight or leaving to escape danger. So I guess I can kind of see how just enough of this could make you a highly successful CEO. But I think that this is a little tough because I think it's a little normalizing high stress levels and hustling 
for self-worth. So I have conflicting thoughts about this theory. I have conflicting thoughts about anxiety. Anxiety is a fickle minx. I read an article by Psychology Today, and I'm just going to read a little bit of this because I think it says it really well. Neurologically, anxiety is a powerful signal that helps regulate attention and motivation to look after the things you care about most in life. Anxiety means you care, and it goes hand in hand with a meaningful life according to research. You simply can't take care of things without feeling anxiety from time to time, but that doesn't mean anxiety is pleasant. Far from comfortable, anxiety plays dirty, grabbing our attention when and where it is most needed. And if you don't channel its energy and focus or fear it in any way, anxiety can quickly escalate into the kind of anxiety that is, well, too much. This is the kind of severe anxiety that gets in the way of you living your life, thinking straight or taking care of things. This is the kind of debilitating anxiety that feels like it manages you rather than the other way around. But not all anxiety is severe. A moderate amount of anxiety is the sweet spot when it comes to using anxiety to your advantage. Moderate anxiety can actually help keep us on our toes, tending to the things we care about most and nudging us towards our best selves. I think that, I think that really summarizes how I'm thinking about anxiety that like, I totally understand that foundationally it got me to try. It got me to step out the door and try and take care of my life. Right. But I think because the reward system for high anxiety is so addicting that your anxiety will just sort of spiral out of control without you even noticing until you take a break like I did. My daughter has really high anxiety as well, which like her doctor pulls me aside and is like, so do you have anxiety? (laughs) And I'm like, ma'am, it's oozing out of my pores right this second. (laughs) So I totally understand that she has anxiety. And on one hand, we know we don't have to worry about her. Like her anxiety will drive her to make it in life, to strive, to not let the bills go unpaid, to not let her avoid talking to her professor about a grade. Like we know she's going to make it. But for me, anxiety is a double-edged sword that deserves scrutiny and constant evaluation, even if if it is serving us. So even though, you know, I think she's going to make it, she's definitely going to need therapy to talk about these extreme levels of anxiety that are causing a lot of pain and distress in her life. So let's talk about these types of anxiety. Again, anxiety is anticipation of a future concern, a future scenario that elicits a bodily response. It's such a sweeping statement again, so I wanted to be very specific about the types of anxiety that I've struggled with. So let's talk about those. Where they stemmed from, where those little, where those little precious anxiety babies were born in my life, and how they played out in my life and my career, and things that I have learned about that, and things that I have used or done to manage against that anxiety. Number one, money anxiety. Again. Anxiety about not making it in life. I think people who don't necessarily come from money, and I'm not talking about people that like weren't wealthy, just people who genuinely didn't feel safe about money. These people tend to be highly aware of how low their floor is. When you don't feel like you have people in your life to help you out if things get dire, your flow is your floor is low and you feel it daily. In college, I remember going to Plato's Closet, which for those of you who don't know, it's like a secondhand store that will buy your clothes and literally buy your clothes for like cents on the dollar to then sell it secondhand. But I remember going to sell a sweater to Plato's Closet so that I could afford to put gas in my car to get to my job. I worked 40 hours a week. I didn't eat well at all because I didn't have time nor money. And I just genuinely didn't feel safe for a big part of my life. And I didn't have 
a safety net. So if my car got towed because of, you know, predatory college towing companies, or if I ran out of money for groceries before the week was over, or before I got my paycheck, or if I ran out of contacts before and I couldn't afford new ones, right? There was no one there to bail me out. It was just me and I, I could feel that floor. I didn't just see it. I could see it and I could experience it. And don't get me started on this next bit, but it's, it's my soapbox. But in America, the floor is super low. When basic things like healthcare benefits are tied to your employer, and if you lose your job, you lose access to your healthcare, that is a constant reminder of how low your floor is, which is scary. It's scary to see that floor. It's scary to feel that floor. And some people's floors might be, okay, when things get dire, I'll just move in with my parents for a little while. Or, okay, when things get dire, I'll make some tough budget cuts and things will be fine. But some people's floors are genuinely not making it. Like if they aren't successful in their careers, they aren't going to make it. And this is a crippling anxiety that tends to rule your every decision, every priority, every thought. And that was mine. Mine was sort of this, wasn't just like, oh, I don't have enough money. It was like, I'm not going to make it. I'm not okay. How this has played out in my career. So I've talked about this before, but money anxiety, crippling money anxiety, like I talked about before. Being terrified of that dark pit that is your floor can really drive this above all else mentality. Money above all else. You choose jobs that are misaligned with your values because it pays well. You choose to stay at a tough, toxic job that's two hours away from your home because it pays well. You sacrifice everything to serve your base level hierarchical need of money and you sacrifice everything else. And you choose to accept abusive or toxic behavior, again, to get your paycheck. And I, this, this really drove me in every career decision I made. I didn't consider culture of a company. I didn't con- consider happiness or joy or boundaries or my coworkers or my boss. As long as that job paid me more, I was like, yep, cool. See you Monday. And man, I paid for those decisions. I really did. Yes, I got the paycheck, but I also lost many years of my life to misery, to misery and, and high anxiety and, and maybe not anxiety about money as much, but all the other players, all the other anxiety players definitely <laughs> got heightened to make up for it. They were like, oh, you don't feel many anxiety anymore? Well, we're just going to ratchet it up a bit. And this made me, for the lack of a better word, desperate. And being desperate in the corporate world is not a place you want to be. It gives you this really kind of fickle North Star. And instead of a moral North Star that you've identified for yourself of like, okay, this is my decision-making framework because I want to be a good person or whatever. It's not a value-driven North Star. You haven't decided what's important in your life and that's the framework you use. It's a fickle North Star of money. You have this money North Star that has caused me to make really awful decisions, made me cutthroat, made me greedy, trapped me in this cycle of like greed and consuming. And I was this rag doll that was constantly whipped by the drive for money. So what have I done to try and manage this? This is, this is a big one for me. This is a hard one. This one is like deep rooted in me, (laughs) just kind of my makeup as a human. So it's hard to dissect. It's hard to pull out. Um, But things I've done to manage this. Number one, ask yourself, think on and write down 
what you want money for. What do you want money for? Do you want, I don't know, generational wealth and $20 million in the bank for, I don't know, to start a charity in 40 years, like to start an animal sanctuary? Like, what do you want money for? For me, I wanted money for freedom and connection. When I really took time, and it took a couple months to think about this, I wanted those two things. I wanted to feel free that if I had car problems or there was a medical emergency or something, that I wouldn't just go fetal because I knew I couldn't handle the cost, that I felt this freedom to think about other things besides money. And then second, I wanted connection. I wanted to you know, be able to travel with my friends. I wanted to be able to go out to dinner with my friends or grab drinks or buy gifts, Christmas gifts for my friends. I wanted connection. And so that has helped me with my framework of like, okay, will a huge house, will a 20,000 square foot house give me freedom and connection? Not really, right? Not really. And can it helps you reevaluate and reset the chasing for money. I also tried really hard to understand and accept that money can't bandage over mental and physical well-being. Like I had to internalize this, okay? When I think about the times that I was making the most money in my career and, you know, the most money at like one company and then the most money at another company before I sort of moved, my mental and physical well-being was terrible, terrible. I ate poorly. I was unhealthy. I wasn't kind or generous. And when I look back, I don't weigh those equally anymore. I don't weigh my well-being and my ability to make money equally. And then another thing that I've done to manage and that I recommend is to try and draw a boundary or two. Like if you are feeling crippling money anxiety and you're just like, I can't sacrifice my career. I have to keep accepting everything that comes at me. Every single, every single thing my boss gives to me, I have to say yes. Try and draw a boundary or two. Be brave. Start small. And prove to yourself that you don't automatically lose all of your money for drawing one boundary. <laughs> like you kind of have to teach your body that. You kind of have to be like, okay, you don't have to just completely burn yourself out to make your paycheck. You can say, I don't have time for that. And you will still make your paycheck. You can leave at 5 p.m. and still collect your paycheck. Um, See episode number two, if you haven't, about taking little corporate cleanses. Take one corporate cleanse a week. Like build, like reroute those neural pathways for yourself. Build trust in yourself that this will not cost you all your money. And I promise you just try it once and then that reward system gets rerouted. Right now, if you're in crippling money anxiety, your reward system is the harder I work, the safer I am. And you need to reroute that to, I can still draw boundaries and still feel safe. Safer, arguably, mentally and emotionally, <laughs> but it actually won't have a huge impact on your paycheck, even though your body and your mind and your brain has kind of tricked you into thinking that. The next type of anxiety I want to talk about is uncertainty. Anxiety, anxiety about not being prepared for every scenario possible. Where this comes from. So growing up, my mom worked. Well, both my parents worked. Both my parents worked. So I was never prepared for anything. <laughs> like I showed up to school with the wrong school projects like scant lunches because my mom forgot I was going on a field trip and needed to pack me a lunch. And so it'd just be kind of this random array of stuff. One time I had to bring a spool of thread to school for like a project, like a craft. And my mom forgot. So I went like rummaging through her sewing stuff and got a bobbin. And I showed up to school. 
and I couldn't do the project and my teacher wasn't very kind about it and I had to sit in the corner like coloring instead of doing this project with the rest of the class because I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared to have the fun thing. I wasn't prepared to make, I don't know, we were making like army man parachutes or something. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't ready for anything and I didn't have the right clothes. I didn't have the right pajamas. Like another really vulnerable, sad memory that I still have and it still haunts me. I went to a sleepover once and it was like one of my first sleepovers with like a bunch of girls. And I only packed, I packed the only matching set of pajamas I had because I thought that's what you had to do. I was like, oh, you have to look good. You have to look cute. And this pair of pajamas was way too small for me. It was like tiny little shorts and like a tiny little tank top. And at this point I was like just hitting puberty and just being aware of my body and I remember just feeling insane shame at the sleepover because I was starting to be aware of like puberty and my body. And I was like, I'm, I can't, I'm not covered. I, this is, this is, I'm uncomfortable. And I just hyper fixated all night about how ill prepared I was. So I definitely have trauma. <laughs> I have trauma about not feeling prepared. And so I've developed this really intense anxiety about being prepared. I have a closet in my house that's called the store where there are just like backups on backups on backups of things because like heaven forbid I run out of shampoo and the world crumbles and I die, right? That's what I think. And I'm like, okay, well, if I have two backups of shampoo, I'm safe. I'm good. I'm set. I'm ready for anything. Whenever I go on a vacation or a trip, I have this routine my husband makes fun of me, but I will sit on the bathroom floor. I will get every single product out, put it on the floor so I can see it. And I'm not packing 90% of what's out, but if I can see everything, it gives me a sense of being prepared just in case I want to pack those things. That's how, that's how neurotic I've kind of become with this. Okay. Last example. There are certain coffee shops that I don't go to anymore because my biggest fear is showing up with my like entire huge work bag, my like my ludicrously capacious bag (laughs) and having a latte that is filled to the brim, like precariously balanced on this little plate and having nowhere to sit. That's my biggest fear. That's my nightmare. And if I don't have a direct line and a plan once I get my coffee of where I'm going to sit and put my precarious coffee, I would rather just put my coffee down, thank the staff, and, and, and just leave. <laughs> like, I guess I'll just try again another day. Because being unprepared causes me that much anxiety. So I apologize. You're probably like, Jen, we understood this three anecdotes ago. But this is like a majority. It's a ruling house anxiety for me. Uncertainty, anxiety, like rules house for me. So I wanted to make it clear. Cool, Jen, you did. Cool. All right, moving on. How this has played out in my career. This has caused me this fear of uncertainty, this need to be prepared. This has caused me to dress rehearse tragedy every day, all the time, where I am thinking through every bad scenario, every bad thought someone could have about me or my work, every worst case scenario I think about, I ruminate on, I list out in bullet points. Dress rehearsing tragedy is like neuroticism at its finest. Like we can somehow shield ourselves from pain by just causing pain to ourselves. It's like, okay, worst case scenario, you're not going to surprise me because I've already thought about it. As long as I'm in control of the pain, it's less painful, right? Definitely not. Not so. We're just spending time and energy punishing ourselves because we can't get a handle on our anxiety. And dress rehearsing, dress rehearsing tragedy feels safer. It gives us something to do when we can't sit in discomfort, I definitely dress rehearse tragedy so many times in my career. I spent so much precious time and energy and mental capacity thinking through things that never happened, 
thinking through like 10 things that never happened, 100 things that never happened. This also caused me to have this sort of desperate need for context to the point of being like a little nosy. Like some of the stuff that is going on in the company, it's just not your business. You know, it's just not my business what's happening over there with Troy and Ron. You know, it's just not my business. And I'm just going to leave it alone. But I made it my business. I was like, I need to know. I need to know everything. I need to know every detail. Tell me. But I was probably better off not knowing in a lot of cases, not knowing all the gritty details behind the scenes. I think a subset of dress rehearsing tragedy is hyper fixating on my insecurities. No way someone was going to catch me off guard with tough feedback or criticism because I beat them to it. I had already thought about all the terrible things someone could think about me because somehow this protected me from potential threats, question mark. It didn't. But me being able to beat someone to the punch, me being able to soothe anxiety by knowing all the bad things about myself and reminding me myself about all the bad things about myself, that's what I did. It also made me panic way too much. Like everything was a fire. Everything required an all-hands-on-deck situation. Like I had my high up in my head voice, you know, that kind of stress voice that you get. I don't know. Like it's up here. It's like it's a different register because you're just panicked. You're panicked. Everything is crazy. Everything is stressful. Everything is like, I don't know, DEFCON 5, right? And this also caused me to be the worst perfectionist I've ever been. I overworked my work. Like overworking presentations, overworking reports, spending five times the amount of time I needed to on something because I needed it to be perfect. Because being perfect would keep me safe, would soothe my uncertainty anxiety. So I really drilled down on being a perfectionist. And trying to reach this sort of unreachable level of perfectionism to somehow eliminate the chances of someone being displeased with me, to somehow eliminate the chances of being caught off guard, that's where I spent my time and my energy. So what I've done to manage my uncertainty, anxiety, ask for feedback. It's not as scary as you think. I mean, here I, I'm here sitting here thinking about the the one time I got feedback from a 360 degree review and it was like 12 years ago and it was like the gentlest, kindest feedback I've ever received and it rocked me for years. Like Whitney, if you're listening, she was my peer and she gave me this feedback and she was like, sometimes we work on projects consecutively rather than concurrently. It's like the kindest, gentlest feedback anybody could give. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm worthless. I'm a piece of shit. And I just ruminated on that feedback. So practice taking feedback. Practice asking for feedback. Practice breathing through people telling you things that you could improve. It helps break down that sort of like facade of perfectionism, which you need to. You need to break that down. You're not perfect. You need to practice not being perfect. Recognize and identify when you are overthinking and spiraling and just stop. Get into your body and move. This is what I do when I'm overthinking, when I'm ruminating, when I'm spiraling into like, okay, this could happen. This could happen. Oh, my boss didn't put an exclamation point at the end of an email, but a period. What could this mean? Am I getting fired? Stop and move. Dance, walk, stretch, stand up, touch your toes, take three intentional breaths. Like for those of you that are listening to this podcast, take a deep breath right now. And guaranteed, you're probably thinking like, wow, is this the first deep breath I've taken all day? Probably, Probably, but taking an intentional breath where you are aware of what you're doing because you're thinking about it, 
you're thinking about in and out, that takes you out of your head so fast. Journaling really helped me here. I had a spiral bound notebook on my desk and every morning I would write down the things I was feeling anxious about. The scenarios that I was worried about, the scenarios that I was sort of like ruminating on, this really helped me get out of my head. It helps me move through my anxiety instead of just resisting. It was like, okay, I'm just going to make it real. All these terrible thoughts I'm having, I'm going to make it real. I'm going to write it down and I'm going to let it go. I'm going to move through it. And then lastly, find a way to regulate your damn nervous system. Like this was a huge realization for me. I took a breathwork course from this amazing facilitator And the biggest realization I got after I took this course was how on fire my nervous system was all the time. And like how weird it was to feel being calm because I was like, well, this is a new sensation. (laughs) I guess that means I have not been calm for a long damn time, for like 13 years. So for me, breathwork really helps me regulate my nervous system. I kind of visualize this. Like if you are high anxiety and you're in your workplace and things are stressful, you kind of just like keep moving up this like you're filling your body with stress. Like and every single new meeting is like another inch and another inch and another inch and another inch. And then finally it hits your head and you're completely full and you just maintain that position. So everything that you're doing, you're just full stress. And taking a deep breath, trying to regulate your nervous system, just like kind of takes that down, takes that down out of your head just a little bit so that you have a better baseline to start from again when someone else brings you a fire. But if you're constantly full and you're just sort of sitting in that place, your nervous system is not, is unwell. Your nervous system is unwell and needs a break, needs a break. Okay, my favorite control anxiety, anxiety about not being in control. For all of my control freaks out there, this is, this is my favorite one to talk about. This one's been so interesting. This is sort of like my gold star anxiety. It's fascinating. It, it rules me so powerfully and it's been the hardest one for me to like pinpoint. And I think it's similar to uncertainty, anxiety, and I probably could have grouped these together, but I find control anxiety to be a really special subset, like similar anxiety, but different font, you know, and it's worth calling out because I have seen this one in so many of my friends, my family, my coworkers, and me are some, something happened in our childhood that has caused us to want to control everything around us, right? For me, it's not being prepared. It's, it's a whole myriad of things. In my early 20s, I was a young mother and we were super poor. And I was putting my partner at the time through college. So my masculine took, energy took over hard, hard. I was like, okay, I will steer this ship and make sure we make it. Like things are dire, things aren't okay, but I'm going to take over this ship and I'm going to get us to where we need to go on my back with blood, sweat, and tears. So I controlled every aspect, the bills, the funds in, the funds out, the meals we made, the family calendar, everything was meticulously planned because in my mind, the only way we were going to make it is if I controlled everything. If I had a handle on everything, if I could just monitor everything, I could kind of like, I could mitigate risk. I could make sure that we would make it. And there's definitely some perfectionism sprinkled in here too. Like my life is havoc, but I can control myself and myself will be perfection. I subscribe to the belief, or I have subscribed, that if I overregulate my internal and my external world, I will achieve safety. Sadly, a toxic cycle occurs when we believe that we can or should be able to control all of the constantly moving targets that life presents. 
The more we strive for control, the greater our stress and anxiety grows. Then we respond by trying to control the uncontrollable. And this unproductive cycle continues. So we, tr- we fool ourselves. We fool ourselves into this like control equals safety because it's not the case. So how this has played out in my career. Tell me if this sounds familiar. A term I used to use a lot that I think stems from my control anxiety was, or I get not a term, a phrase. I just need to get my arms around it. I just need to get my, I got to get my arms around this. Like, I don't have to get my arms around anything. I don't have to get my arms around shit. But I kind of like thrust all of these problems on myself. These huge macro problems that kept snowballing because I kept adding it to the scope of the project. And I got, you know, add, I, I, I added so much complexity with my like big old grabby arms. I was like, I just got to get my arms around it. And so I just started getting my arms around the whole company and every single problem in the company. Because if I could see it, I'd have control and everything would be okay. And I started to add things to my plate that weren't necessarily part of my job. And I understand that part of business, especially at startups, like part of your job is to find and solve problems. I understand that. And the, and there are problems that aren't necessarily outlined in your job description or not like handed to you by your manager. But for me, it made me really reachy. It made me really grabby and definitely anxious as hell because every problem was my problem. I made every problem at every company my problem, my personal individual problem. And this made my scope creep of projects like out of control. As I dug further, more and more needed to be, quote, end quote, like in my control. So I would keep adding that piece to the project. I'd be like, oh, that piece, I can be getting my arms around it. Might as well add that to scope. So that sounds familiar. You might have some control issues if, if you're kind of like, oh, I just got to get my arms around that. And it's, you really don't. Like Tom over in customer success has that handled. You don't need to get your arms around it. It's fine. He's got his arms around it. Keep your arms around your stuff. One really good example for me was when I worked at Weave. And I ran product marketing, which touches on a lot of customer communications. I started to dig in. I was like, what does our customer communications look like? And every single department in the company was like sending emails to customers. So at one point I found out that a customer, when they signed on with Weave, would get like six emails that said, welcome to Weave. And I panicked. I was like, my arms are not around this and I need to get my arms around it. So I tried to get my arms around the entire customer communication journey, which like is a huge project. That is a huge project that wasn't in my job description, like was causing some pain, but probably not like the most pain in the company, but it made me really reachy. And all of a sudden I had this giant problem in like 16 different departments that I was like coordinating with when I didn't really need to, but I made it my problem. I was like, this is my personal pan pizza that I'm going to get my arms around and fix. Now, I have realized something that's pretty groundbreaking about this specific type of anxiety. Okay, you ready? And I, I, I want to share it because it's crystallized for me pretty recently. And it's probably, these are big words. It's a big claim. Probably the most interesting and shocking thing I've learned from taking my break in my career. I hope you're like, oh, things are about to get interesting. If you have control issues or anxiety around not feeling in control, and you spend 40 to 60 hours a week in your job, in corporate life, where you don't feel in control. Because corporate life is impossible to control. But if you have issues and you spend your life in an uncontrollable environment like corporate life, where it feels chaotic, you don't have control, 
you will find things to control to soothe that anxiety. You will. So if you have control issues and you can't control your work, you will find things to control. And where do you find those things to control? Your personal life. Now, this is a bonus. How control anxiety has played out in your personal life because of your professional career. This has been kind of shocking, but, but really important, I think, for me to learn. If your job is really demanding, and if you have control issues and you spend your days trying to control the uncontrollable, and if your workplace is like a normal workplace and things are chaotic, out of order, needing to be fixed, there's so many people needing to be optimized, filled with like exchanges in which you can't control those around you or your circumstances, then tell me if this sounds familiar. You spend eight or nine hours in that mess. You come home and you have very little patience for the things that go wrong in your life. Like if you've noticed this in yourself or like you've noticed this in your partner or your partner's noticed this in you, you have car trouble and you lose it. The sitter had to cancel. Parents come over unannounced. Do you just lose it? Like do small inconveniences cause you an outsized amount of rage and panic? Then you might have some pretty severe control issues that are getting exacerbated in your workplace that are now bleeding into your personal life. Do you have a fear or lack of desire to do new things. I realized this because right now, again, I'm in this, the world is my oyster. So I'm like, I'm doing all the things. I'm, I'm fully yes manning everything. I'm like, yep, I'm going to do that. I'm going to try it. When I was working and my husband would come home and he'd be like, let's go for a walk. I'd be like, oh my God, I cannot wrap my mind around a walk. Are you kidding me? I just spent my entire day in a chaotic environment with control issues and now I'm at home and the only thing I want to do are things that I can control, like sitting on the couch and watching TV. Does that sound familiar? Like if you have these issues, man, it's really going to take more from your personal life than you think. If you have little patience for normal things, if you don't want to do anything new, you just want to do things that are safe. My husband and I were recently in Detroit for a friend's wedding and work has been really stressful for my husband um, on top of like some, you know, personal and and family stuff as well. But we were at our Airbnb and we were like, let's start a new show. Like we don't watch a ton of TV, but like we wanted to start a new show. My husband recommended this show that was about like the first 30 days in Iraq during the Iraq war. (laughs) We turned it on. And immediately, like two minutes in, we were like, we can't handle this. I can't handle this. This is too much. And we watched The Great British Baking Show instead, which I won't talk about, but I love it. I adore it. It's wonderful. Because my husband had spent so much time and energy and focus on a chaotic work uh, life, work, yeah, work experience, The only thing he had space for at that point was the Great British Baking Show, which is just like a fluffy ball of light and goodness and warmth, which there is space for that. I, I, that's why it's so popular. I love it. But I think being aware of how much space you have in your life because of how much you give to your work is, is important to evaluate. You need to be thinking about that. Do you overly control your kid's behavior or your spouse's behavior? Have you become incredibly critical of everything and everyone around you? Because you can't control people at work. So you're going to control the people at home, like your kids. This was me. I have crazy control issues. I couldn't control my coworkers. I couldn't control my toxic boss or my crazy coworker or whatever. So I came home and I would rage at my daughter for not brushing her teeth right after eating dessert. You know, like these weird small things I would try and control and I would just drill down. I'd be like, oh, I'm going to just white knuckle my family (laughs) because I can't white knuckle my boss, but I can white knuckle my family. 
do you have little patience for not knowing? Like, have you lost all spontaneity like me? (laughs) Or you need to know all the details because you don't have any space for uh, flexibility. This control issue that you may have gets exacerbated by your work experience and then creates a scarcity mindset in your personal life. And this robs you of so much. Now, an abundance mindset has really only yielded me about 20 crocheted bags in 10 episodes of the Tooth and Claw podcast. But I wake up every day feeling excited, feeling brave, feeling like I have space when KLM loses my bag. When something happens with my family, I have space for it because I don't spend my life feeling out of control. If you have an overactive anxiety about controlling your career, you close up real fast. You build this like suit of armor as a form of protection. You close up. And what's important about this is that you close up not just to the bad, you close up to the good too. You can't selectively choose what you're building armor for. And if you're building armor for the bad in your workplace, you're building armor for the good in your personal life too. And that is a huge realization that I have made in my life. How I have managed. This one again has been a huge realization for me. And there's some things that have worked. There are some things that have worked for me to help soothe my need for control. Number one is try new things. Be, get some practice at being bad at things. Try things that you know you're not going to hit out of the park. Be bad at things. Practice it. And don't lose that muscle. Say yes. Like just sort of like blind reaction. If your partner comes home and is like, let's go for a walk. And all you want to do is sit on the couch and watch Great British Baking Show because you're grumpy and tired. Just say yes without thinking. Just say yes, and your body will carry you through. Find something you can lose yourself in. Find something that you can kind of like stop your spiral thinking of control issues because you're so focused on something else. Like usually something with your hands, something gardening, crocheting for me. (laughs) Like something you can lose yourself in where you're like, wow, two hours have passed. And my favorite tool that I use that I will credit my best friend Courtney with that I love so much, practice saying to yourself, everything is working out perfectly. I love this. It helps me let go of my control. It helps me stop white knuckling everything in my life because everything is working out perfectly. You don't have to strong arm your life. You don't have to strong arm every decision because everything is working out perfectly. Okay, last type of anxiety, status anxiety, or this anxiety about what people think or how people regard you. I, growing up, I've had a lot of anxiety and a fair amount of pain around not fitting in, not belonging, being the weird one, being the imposter, being the other. I was born in South Korea I was adopted as a baby, and I grew up in Spanish Fork, Utah, okay? At the time, this was pretty damn rural for Utah, was Spanish Fork. I think there were three other women in my high school that were Asian, and and we all got mistaken for each other still. I've always been aware of feeling other, of being weird, of being different. I didn't have money. I didn't have status. And I wasn't cool. I wasn't cool at all. If this helps, I was the fastest typer in my computer class. And I wanted to be called Blade in my drama class because I loved the cult classic film, the Wesley Snipes classic Blade, where he's a vampire hunter. I loved that movie. I loved it. And I wanted to be called Blade. I was not cool. And not even like, ooh, cool, nerdy, just maladjusted and, and, and odd. I will maybe post a photo 
on my Instagram. So if you haven't yet, follow us on Instagram at the dot corporate cleanse. I will post a photo of me in high school of what I was, what I was working with. There wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot I was working with. So I became kind of naturally what everyone in those circumstances becomes. A tryhard. I became a crazy tryhard. A tryhard that sort of builds a sense of self and validation and um, an opinion by validation and opinion of others. Validation and an opinion of others based on my performance, based on my achievements, based on my accolades, my grades, my efforts. I was a tryhard and I'm still a tryhard. Like even in my personal relationships, I'm like, do you like me? (laughs) Am I bringing enough value to this relationship? Because myself is still that sort of fast typer, tryhard in computer class, knowing I wasn't enough without being president, without being straight A student, without being great at the piano, without being the hardest worker on the soccer field, without being this high achieving individual. I knew I wasn't enough. And so I needed to constantly be like, am I enough? Am I doing enough for you? And this is a still, this is still a huge part of my self-worth framework that I'm still working through. But that became a really interesting crutch in the professional world, because if you think about it, if you are a tryhard in your personal life, you will definitely be a tryhard to the nth degree in your professional life. And what results from being a tryhard in your 30s, in your career, where your sense of fitting in, your sense of belonging, your sense of self-worth is derived from the opinions of others and the perception of you in your performance? Well, one of them is that your highs are very high but your lows are fucking low. Like your mood, your self-esteem, the way you go home to your family, the way you talk to your kids or your partner or your roommate is all sort of riding on the coattails of your high highs or your low lows. You hold yourself to an impossible standard. You crumble in the face of feedback or any type of criticism. You just can't handle it because you're so fragile because you've built your self-worth framework based on others, not yourself, not how you feel about yourself. You're sort of constantly monitoring the moods of others and anticipating what they think of you and trying to control and manage what they think of you. You overthink what they say, how they say it, what their body language is. And you poke. I used to do this. I, I used to call it, it's a poke where you're like, am I doing everything okay? Are you mad at me? Is everything okay? Am am I doing this wrong? Like you're poking, trying to seek validation because that's your whole framework for self-worth. How I have started to manage through this is practice saying, I don't know. Not with caveats. Don't say like, well, I don't know, but you know, I'll, I'll do some research and get back to you. Or like, well, I'm not positive. Like if you don't know, just say you don't know and just leave it at that. It doesn't matter if somebody thinks that you're the most foremost expert on every single thing that comes up in your workplace. Like, I don't know. Do you want me to find out? I can. Right? Just say, I don't know. Build self-worth on your own. However that comes to you, you got to start building some self-worth just on who you are. One thing that I was sort of forced to do, which was important was introducing myself or meeting new people without saying what I do. Since taking this time off, I no longer could say like, I'm Jen, I'm a tech executive. I'm the SVP of marketing and strategy. You know, I would kind of just rattle off this, like, I'm good, I'm cool because of this. I would say, I'm Jen, it's nice to meet you. So even if you aren't taking some time off, practice. Practice introducing yourself or meeting new people and not saying what you do. Try. What else are you bringing to the table? You're interesting. You're curious. You're funny. You're calm. You're kind. You're dynamic. Those are enough. Those are enough for meeting new people. Anxiety has pushed me in my life and gotten me a lot of what I thought I wanted. But I have let it run roughshod on my life. I really have. 
again, moderate anxiety kind of keeps us on our toes, tending to the things that we care about most and nudging us towards our best selves. But anxiety will play dirty so fast. It wants to play dirty. And it's us. To, it's up to us to manage and scrutinize if the good anxiety or the good that anxiety is giving us is really good or if it's just that poisonous golden ticket. So if you are experiencing physical and mental fatigue, if you are sensing an increased heart rate, like, you know, that feeling at the airport between sort of like TSA and sitting at your gate, that like high adrenaline panic. If you are feeling that all the time at your workplace, if you're noticing an increased heart rate, if you have heightened imposter syndrome and you're constantly feeling like you're not good enough, constantly feeling like you're not qualified, constantly scrutinizing yourself, if you have increased securities and you're hyper-focused on the things that you aren't great at or the things that you feel shame about, if you are quick to panic, if you are quick to anger, if you are over-controlling the things outside of work, if you're over-controlling your kids, your family, your home, your friends, and if you generally have sort of a scarcity mindset in life, it might be time to evaluate what anxiety you have. Name it like I have. Is it status anxiety? Is it money anxiety? Name your anxiety. Identify where it comes from. Like dig deep. And if you need, use your therapist. Dig deep. Where does this come from? What childhood weird memory comes up when you think about why you're, you've developed this anxiety? Identify how it's helped you because it probably has. If you're a high achieving corporate girly, like, yeah, it's probably helped you. Identify how it's helped you in your life and your career. But most importantly, evaluate what it has cost you. What this high functioning anxiety is costing you at the end of the day. And that's all I have for you this week. I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining.